0: Dear friends, we're starting on the sixth chapter of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. And my goal for this lesson is to walk through uh, the doctrine of the covenant of works and the fall of man. We'll just be walking through the first paragraph of the sixth chapter. I know that many of you, um, Pastor Fry taught on this a few weeks ago, and so providentially either we're being repetitious or providentially, the Lord just wants you to hear this once again. But um, since he was teaching through um, covenant theology and biblical theology, it came up there and I'm systematically walking through the confession and here it is. And so I don't wanna skip it just because it was covered covered previously. So let's look at that first chapter of the, um, that first paragraph of the sixth chapter of the 1689. It says, Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which he had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise in holy council to permit having purpose to order it to his own glory. <clears throat> and the topic I want to deal with here in this first paragraph of the sixth chapter is that of the covenant of works. See that here it says although God created man upright and perfect he gave him a righteous law which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof. We see that specifically in Genesis 2, 16 uh, and 17 says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in these early verses, we see the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, and evil. So that is what we would call, uh, it's a positive command. Um, so he was, they were required not to eat of this tree and they were also required to keep the commandments of God and they would be blessed with life had they kept it. If they did not keep those commandments and this positive commandment, they would be uh, cursed with death. They would, they would face the consequences of the fall, which, which happened. Um, you may say, well, look, I don't see anything in here about keeping God's moral law. When we talk about the moral law, um, we're talking about them being summarized in the Ten Commandments or being summarized in the summary of the summary. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So you have a summary of the summary there. He's describing, well, how do you love God? Well, those first four commandments, how do you love man? Those last six commandments. She may say, well, I don't see that here in these verses. We actually don't need that to be given to them. The moral law is required of all people everywhere. And we've talked about this before. You don't need even the Bible to tell you the moral law of God. You can see it in creation itself. We don't need a direct commandment from God to tell Adam that it's wrong for him to murder Eve. That's obvious. It's absolutely clear um, that he's not supposed to do that. Yes, Scripture's going to come around. It's going to communicate that. We're going to have death coming forward in the very next generation with Cain murdering his brother Abel. It's very clear that has been given and you don't see Cain saying, look, you never told me that I wasn't supposed to kill my brother. He knows he's not supposed to kill his brother uh, because he doesn't want someone to kill him. And so that's a good enough reason for him to know that he should not be breaking the moral uh, law of God. We know it would be wrong for Adam to worship anyone who is not God. God being God means that he's the one who should be worshipped. Um, you, you don't need that to even be given. So that's what, how we understand this. Um, the Ten Commandments are plain. They're clear. This is known as the moral law of God. Um, we are required to live according to this moral law, okay? It's given to us by God in the scriptures and in creation around us. And Adam and Eve are humans, therefore they're made in the image of God, um, in in an undamaged image of God, uh, in fact, when they were created, unlike us now who are affected by the fall. Um, And so if we're required to keep the moral law, why would they not be required to as well? They are image bearers. This has been dealt with in much greater detail previously, so I'm not going to uh, push on this too much, but we do need to deal with these because if we're going to talk about the covenant of works, we need to talk about what's entailed in it and why it, why it is important and specifically why it is that you can't keep it now. We understand the moral law to be the Ten Commandments, okay, or summarized there, but God is free to give men other laws. He's free to require anything else of man that he so desires to require of them beyond what is the moral law. And that's where I get the term positive law. That's why I use that term positive law. Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a positive law. And then when I'm thinking about positive laws, um, what I'm doing there is I'm looking at that law in its context and where it's given. This is very important for understanding scripture because some people can maybe be reading through the Old Testament, and maybe you just enjoyed, uh, you know, some crawfish at your friend's house. Maybe you just had a good bowl of gumbo. Uh, maybe you had some shrimp creole. And you begin to read through the Old Testament, and you find out, well, I'm not supposed to be eating shellfish. You know, maybe it'd be better if I didn't eat shellfish. Maybe Christians shouldn't eat rabbits or, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank of whatever animal would be would be unclean or, you know, probably, I don't know, a lot of your favorite is bacon, all right? Should you feel um, convicted that you enjoyed eating bacon for breakfast? Um, And those are positive laws. Those are laws that are given on top of the moral law. So in understanding positive laws, what we're doing is we're looking at the context in which they are given. So you see that within the ceremonial law and the judicial law in the Old Testament. Many people are erring in this. They're beginning to grab portions of the Old Testament that were commanded to, required of, given to Old Testament Israel for them to keep, and they begin to give it to Christians who require Christians to keep these things. There's an entire book in the New Testament that deals with that exact subject. It's the book of Galatians. We are not to take these positive laws that were given to Old Testament Israel and just plop them into the church and bind people's consciences for them we see the moral law given a priority given a distinction okay you could even say almost sanctified in certain ways separated in certain ways it is written by the finger of god it's written on stone um, but the new testament still requires these moral laws there's some that'll say like the ten commandments aren't required of christians all right we would follow the the law of Christ. Well, I don't quite tell you what that is. Um, the, the 10 commandments require that you obey God with every heart, you know, with your heart, uh, with your desires, with your mind, in all aspects, that you love someone um, from within yourself, not just outwardly. Um, these aren't low commandments. These aren't small commandments. These are very rich and deep commandments. These aren't commandments that um, don't come without difficulty for those that are struggling uh, with sin but I want to show this particularly that I believe and I the first place I got this from was a journal article written by Richard Marcellus dealing with this particular topic and you see in my opinion the Ten Commandments here in Timothy with Paul writing to Timothy and his purpose here is not to explain to you that the moral law is still applicable I believe that you see that throughout Paul's writings But you see him beginning this letter here just laying this out as though these are significant laws that are significant in ways in which other laws in the Old Testament are not. So let's look at 1 Timothy 8, 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of, this glo- of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So I think you, I think already you're beginning to see hints of... 10 commandments that are there, but then maybe you're saying, well, but wait, I don't see all of them that are there. Some of those middle ones look like they're there. Let's walk through a few of those. I believe we see the first and second commandments here, uh, the ungodly and sinners referring to the first two commandments which say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Uh, Third commandment, you have the profane refers to the third commandment, which says, you shall not take the name of your Lord, the Lord, your God, in vain. Um, there's actually a journal article about this, which backs this up a little more than I'm going to. I'm just going to lay this out, and I'm not going to go into the depth of the language of this. I think even just a, a basic reading through this, you can see um, certainly the ten, many of the Ten Commandments shining through. Fourth Commandment, the unholy. Um, this is actually a term that specifically, and you do see it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. For those that broke the the uh, fourth commandment, this term, which is translated, the unholy, is attributed to them. That's one of the reasons why um, this, is, this is argued for being the fourth commandment. The unholy refers to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. The fifth commandment, those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's easy. That's the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and mother. Notice how these are kind of going in order as well. Murderers refers to the sixth commandment. That was pretty easy. Um, you shall not murder. Seventh commandment, the sexually immoral, and men who practice homosexuality refers to the seventh commandment. What you have here is many of these are the greatest possible violations of these commandments. Homosexuality being the greatest possible way you could break the seventh commandment. Eighth commandment, enslavers. First to the eighth commandment, which says you shall not steal. What's the greatest way you could possibly steal? Well, you could steal someone's life you could take someone's life away from them. That would be the the greatest violation of the Eighth Commandment. Ninth Commandment, liars and perjurers, obviously perjurer being showing the highest way you could break uh, that particular law refers to the Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then you would say, well, but what about the Tenth Commandment? Well, we have this. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine and whether or not you want to take that as the 10th commandment or not, that's, you, you can consider that. But I, I think that's kind of his point here. Is he's, he's laying out the moral law and he's showing the importance of the moral law. We also have positive laws in the Old Testament. We had positive laws in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We had positive laws. In the Mosaic Covenant, right, the ceremonial law is without question a positive law. Those are not laws that you need to be following necessarily. It doesn't mean they don't, they're not applicable to you. It doesn't mean they don't matter. The writer of Hebrews lays out the ways in which the ceremonial law is applicable to you because it shows you your need for Christ, and it shows you that which Christ did. It shows a, something that is necessary and something that Christ did. And they also show even the insufficiency of those those laws, those ceremonies, that, that Christ dies and the veil is torn. Christ dies. There's no longer a need to bring these sacrifices. During the ceremonial law, all right, they were practicing the sacrifices. They bring the sacrifice forward. Was that it? Did the fire go out? You don't need to do anything else? No. Still burning. Okay. Yes, your sin was imputed to this animal But there's still a problem here okay you were allowed to continue to exist in relationship with god through this mosaic covenant but ultimately this animal is insufficient the ceremonial law was insufficient it pointed to the one who was sufficient in the new testament we have positive laws as well can you think of some about baptism about the lord's supper um, how about all of the different uh rules that were given uh, for the church and how it is that you should or to the church. So those are given specifically for people in this time period, for where we are now. Okay, there may be things that point to what we have now and how we're doing things, and you see a connection between these things, but, but these specific laws, these rules, these commandments that are given as to how we operate in the church, they're distinct and specific for this time period. But the moral law was applicable all right, before the Mosaic Covenant. It was applicable in the Mosaic Covenant, and it's applicable now, during this time of the New Testament church, these things are still required and applicable. Um, we have this sad reality, though, and that 's what 's talked about here in this first paragraph, is the fact that man fell. he didn't long abide in this standing. The Lord made this covenant with Adam and required of him to keep these commandments, but yet it, he didn't long abide in it, as the confession says. Genesis three twelve through thirteen, the man said, "This is such a famous passage where he just blames God for his sin. Have you ever done that? Have you ever blamed God for your sin? Well, if only I wouldn't have been here, or if only this would have been different, or maybe if I was just raised differently, maybe if I would have had uh, you know, this blessing or this benefit. He, he had everything. They had everything. They had the whole garden. Just don't eat from this tree. Okay." Just like, the, just like the the, toddler. Okay, don't touch the plug. The toddler wasn't even thinking about the plug. And there the toddler is putting the hand out for the plug. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she, uh, she gave me fruit, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so this is the fall. This is the, the consequences of the fall. And you you may, you know, I want you to see something as well. And that is the connection between breaking this positive law and its connection to breaking the moral law. Because God gives specific positive laws. And then our failure to um, keep those, our violation of those positive laws that he's given to us, it's a violation of of moral laws. And so we're going to go through a little exercise here. We don't want to press it too much. I'm going to show you some deficiencies possibly with it, but I, I do wanna lay it out so you can kinda of see this idea of how it is that laws connect to each other, how it is that sins aren't isolated and they're, they're all by themselves and it's just this little thing over here. Sometimes we can do that, we can say, well, you know, this just this area of my life. You know, you can't compartmentalize your life. Um, you know, Martin Luther makes this point, he says, even my pots and pans should be sanctified. Like even the food that I make in my house should be glorifying God. I should be serving God even in that respect. Look at what James says here in James 2, 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the, the royal law according to Scripture, now again, royal law there, we're looking at the, mor- the moral law of God. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So be, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And we see this idea of, of the breaking of one law is a violation of the laws in their totality. Um, there's a systematic theologian, I think from the 17th century, his name is Usher. Um, and I, he actually walks through this in his systematic theology. I was in Dallas, and so I didn't have access to my book. So I'm actually going to walk you through an example of this, and it'll probably be easier to uh, even understand, because Usher's not the easiest to read Um, And so this is a blog by Mark Jones on Reformation 21. I want you to see how Mark Jones walks through the sin in the garden of Adam and Eve and how it is that they broke this positive law, but it was connected to other laws. I'm going to tell you ahead of time that there's some deficiencies to this. There's a lot of ways that this is right on. I think on the Seventh Commandment, it's a little weak. And so I wouldn't want to go into a debate having to argue the violation of the Seventh Commandment. but, But just kind of think through this, just kind of... As an exercise, consider how it is that the breaking of a positive law like this that God gives is um, evidence of failure in these other laws. So um, he who broke the first commandment in his unbelief, as the Reformed have rightly noted, unbelief was Adam's first sin. He failed to love God, but instead showed sinful self-love. He was self-seeking. His sin included unbelief, distrust, despair, pride, presumption, and cowardice. This was also a failure to depend on the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to say this as well. There's a little weakness in even how he worded this, but just kind of um, we need to hold on like his sin was eating the fruit and keep it there. But also understand these other factors and ways in which he, he broke these laws. So without taking away from what we have that the first sin was the eating of the fruit. Uh, he broke the second commandment. Uh, God was to be worshiped in a particular manner, which included what Adam was commanded to do, as well as what Adam was commanded not to do. But Adam transgressed the law of proper worship. Adam tolerated false religion and did not, as prophet, priest, and king, guard the temple of God. He should have snapped the serpent's head off. To understand, to work and to keep, those are the exact same terms. You've heard this many times. are the same terms that are used of the priest and the temple. They were to work and to keep, so they're to work into that word's also translated guard. Adam was a priest in this temple in the garden. Some of you may think like, well, it seems like you're stretching there. You say that he's a priest in the garden. The Bible doesn't say Adam is a priest in the garden. I Think we could make that argument? But one of the quick points I want to bring to your mind is the fact that whenever you read of the artistry within the tabernacle and the in the temple, do do you find it interesting that you see the making of pomegranates and and different trees. The tabernacle is like a a little garden. That's the picture that is there. It's communicating this idea of this garden, but then this this damage that is there, it's been affected. You walk through that Eastern door and the first thing you see is this giant flame burning in front of you, which is what was at the Eastern gate of the garden. When Adam and Eve were kicked out, there was a flaming sword. Um, And so, yes, he was prophet, priest, and king. Yes, he was called to work and to keep this garden and protecting the garden was part of it. But instead, the serpent invaded the garden. He broke the third commandment. (coughs) As God's son and image bearer, Adam brought dishonor upon his father. God must be given the preeminence by those who bear his name. Moreover, God's word... The word by which uh, he spoke to Adam and warned him was not reverently used by Adam. He failed to speak true theology to the serpent. Now think about this. How, how do you normally consider violating the third commandment? It's normally while well, someone's using God's name as a curse word or someone's upset about something or they get cut off in traffic and they use the Lord's name in vain. And yeah, that is a violation of the third commandment. that is not primarily how the violation of the third commandment is communicated in the scripture. It's first living in a way that is contrary to your profession, living in a way that is contrary to who you are as one made in the image of God, speaking things that are not true about God is to use his name in vain. He broke the fourth commandment. Adam's disobedience kept him from entering the eternal rest. He was like us to make every effort to enter God's rest. Hebrews 4.11. He did not rest in God when he allowed his wife to eat of the tree and was commanded not to. Um, not to eat from. He jeopardized his eternal rest, which is a violation of the Sabbath. That might not be the strongest one, but I think we can kind of see this idea of not resting properly. Uh, Fifth Commandment. He broke the Fifth Commandment. Adam did not honor his father. Uh, He would have had long days had he honored his father. Sixth Commandment. Uh, Adam became a wicked murderer. Like the devil, he sinned against God. He had a duty towards his posterity to give them life, but he gave them death instead you know one of the one of the ways in which you keep the sixth commandment is by protecting the life of other people is by being mindful of other people it's not just okay i didn't kill anyone okay if you're driving in a way that's jeopardizing the lives of other people you are breaking the sixth commandment seventh commandment this i already warned you this isn't the strongest one but he broke the seventh commandment adam did not show his love to his wife when he stood by and let her speak with the devil he should have protected eve and he did not. Um, Eighth commandment, he allowed his wife to steal. She took what was not hers. He joined her in the act of theft. He absolutely took what he should not have taken. Ninth commandment, uh, he became um, like the father of lies by failing to speak the truth about God and uphold God's goodness. When he was questioned, Adam should have discouraged uh, the slaughter of Satan. He allowed a lie to be perpetrated. uh, When he allowed Eve to take the forbidden fruit, Lastly, Tenth Commandment, this is one of the easiest ones. Uh, all sin is going to fall under coveting in some way. Uh, he broke the Tenth Commandment. Adam was discontent with his own estate. He was discontent with what God gave him, and he coveted that which God had had forbidden. And so just as an exercise to see this, how you know one act can violate multiple of the commandments at the same time, if you really ponder it and, and think about it, you really think of your heart in you know, some ways in which you fall, fallen or some way in which you are struggling to really think through these, these other areas will help you to kind of get to the root of some of these sinful behaviors. Um, because sometimes we just focus on the outward action. We're just focusing on, oh, I just need to make this change or change my environment. And, and, and maybe those can be helpful at times, but you're not really dealing with the root of the problem. And considering the ways in which you're breaking God's moral law is, in my opinion, very helpful. Some will say this about the covenant of works and say, look, it doesn't say covenant. It never says in those early pages of Genesis that God made a covenant with Adam. And since it doesn't say covenant, you can't say that it's the covenant of works or you can't say that it is a covenant. Um, This is what Richard Barcellus would call the word name fallacy or something along those lines. Basically, well, it doesn't say the word, it doesn't name it exactly, therefore you can't say uh, that's what it is. we saw it a few weeks ago that we've, we had a parable in the Gospel of Luke, and it wasn't a parable. Well, why did I say it was a parable? Because it fit the description of the parable. It had all the components of a, a parable. And I want to make an argument that it has those components uh, very much, that Adam was promised life if he kept this, and was promised death if he did not keep this. Um, but I think it does say covenant. I think we can, you can make that, that example. Um, so that's, that's the argument. Some will say it doesn't say covenant, so you can't say that it's a covenant of works. Let's look at Hosea 6, 6 through 8. And I want you to think about these passages. If there's not a covenant of works, what are they talking about? Because if there is a covenant of works, these passages make a lot more sense. Hosea 6, 6 through 8, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed, the covenant. There they dealt falseless, false, fault faithlessly with me. Um, faultlessly doesn't fit within that context at all. Um, but they violated, they transgressed the covenant like Adam. Okay, they're comparing the sin of Israel and violating their Mosaic covenant to Adam violating the covenant of works that God made with him. By the way, a little Baptist argument there, you, it's, that's an argument for the Mosaic covenant being a covenant of works, the fact that they're transgressing that covenant, a covenant of grace, which is what we have in Christ. Okay, we have what we have in Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. The covenant of works was you do this and you will get this. Uh, Job 31, 33, this one is... I'm not going to spend the time to go through all of the language aspects of this, but I am using a different translation just so you can see this idea. Job 31, if I've covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, there are some that would translate this Adam, and there are some that would translate this like men or like them or something, something like that. But If it's translated like Adam, it very much shows this idea of a covenant, a transgressing of a a specific law. Let's let's keep going. Isaiah 24, 5, and 6. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, um, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Again, you have this idea of breaking the everlasting covenant. If we have this idea of a covenant of works that has been broken, and we have what we'll deal with shortly after this, which is the federal headship of Adam, and Adam breaking this covenant, and him representing all humanity, we have this idea of people as a whole breaking this everlasting covenant, breaking this covenant that came from God. The question is, well what covenants are being referred to here. Because the covenant of works very much ties into the theology that we have within the New Testament. Um, The covenant of works is what helps us to understand what it is that Jesus has done. That's why it's very important that we're careful with these things. You begin to mess around with Adam too much. You begin to say, well, Adam never existed. Well, that's, that's kind of a problem theologically. It's a problem because now Jesus is the second Adam. So he's the second of the one that never existed. So there's a connection here between what Adam was required to do, what he didn't do, and then what Jesus did. And we're going to walk through that in our next couple lessons. But I want you to see how this idea of the covenant of works and a violation of the covenant of works, it being broken and our inability to keep it ourselves, very much ties into the theology that Paul puts forward in the book of Romans. Let's look at Romans three twenty-seven and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If you understand the fact that Adam was required to keep this this covenant of works, which required of him to keep this positive commandment and this moral law, it helps us to see here why it is that we are not able to keep this law ourselves. We we aren't able to meet the standard. We're not able to meet the standard of the covenant of works for well a couple couple reasons. Um, First, it's not possible to keep the standard in the garden because um, we're not there. It's not been given to us. It's Also, just as a reminder for positive law, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to eat the uh, the forbidden fruit. You don't you're have to walk around the grocery store and be concerned if you're going to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's, you don't know what it is. Probably wasn't an apple. I know that's the picture we like to use in all the coloring books. Um, but you don't have to worry about that. And it's not, It hasn't been given to you. It was given to Adam And he fell short secondly we can't keep the moral law we can't keep that we can't keep that standard Um, we've been affected by the fall we can't even keep the bare we can't even keep the bare minimum of the moral law much less the uh, greater requirement of keeping the positive law of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil kind of look at paul's wording here in galatians 3 kind of keep these ideas of what we're seeing coming out of the garden in these first few it was possible to live according to the law and, and be justified before God, to be demonstrated right. Adam could have walked in obedience and been blessed. That's what Jesus did. But it's different for us now because we are born fallen in sin. Adam sinned. We we have upon us the guilt of what he did and we also have upon us our fallen nature such that we're not even able to keep the law of God. So, curses everyone that does not keep everything required in it. This is one of the reasons it's very, very important that we preach the law of God. That the law of God is laid out clearly, that it is understood that, that we don't rightly keep this law because what can happen is you begin to lower the law and it just becomes more of a pep talk of you can do this, you've got this. No, the law is there that we can see. We fall short, it reminds us as Christians we need to trust in Christ, it reminds us of the grace that has been shown to us which should motivate us to walk in obedience and it also reminds the sinner that he can't save himself, that he is left completely hopeless because if you don't have that, you don't have that, you have, well, well, maybe I'll just do better next time. You know, maybe I can, maybe I can pull this off this time. And that's, that's, that's the danger that is there. That's the danger of lowering the law of God. So that's I think that's where we want to we want to land this, but that's the idea that that we're communicating here is this picture of man in the garden and the covenant of works that was given to Adam, the requirement of keeping the moral law and the additional requirement of the positive law of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a covenant made, had he kept it, he would have been blessed. It would have resulted in we'll see this shortly, but it would have resulted ultimately in glorification, all right, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul's pointing to in such a verse, that glorification that has fallen short, that you will not receive that glorification. You will not receive that eternal state. You will not receive that new body that will be unaffected. Um, Why is that? It's because of sin. And so because of that, God has made a way whereby we can be saved. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that promise that was given There in the third chapter of Genesis in verse 15, that by the child of the woman, he will crush the head of the serpent. That's the promise that was given there to Eve that came forward through uh, Christ being born of the Virgin Mary and Christ triumphing over evil by keeping the law perfectly. See, the law is coming back into this again. Christ kept the law perfectly, whereby you can gain the benefits by grace and through faith of His obedience, all right, and he also took upon himself the consequences of sin, taking upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God. Oftentimes, the gospel is preached in such a way when we only talk about what Jesus did in taking upon himself the wrath of God. That's what we call the passive obedience of Jesus. Oftentimes, we only talk about the fact that Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God. He did take upon himself the wrath of God. right, that's his passive obedience, but he also kept the law in every way so that you in Christ are in a better position than Adam was because Adam had righteousness, okay? He was righteous, but he had not been obedient. He had not gained the benefits of obedience to the law of God in gaining what was promised in the covenant of works. But you have that in Christ. You have the removal of the consequences of sin and the wrath of God, but you also have the benefits of perfect obedience to the law of God. And that's important for you as a Christian to remember your relationship with God. That your relationship with God is not something that goes up and down. It it does not change week in in, and week out, okay? There are consequences for your own sin in your life. There's no question of that. But you're standing with God from a legal standing is one of sinless perfection and perfect obedience to the law of God. That's what Christ purchased for his people. Without that, you cannot go to heaven. Without that, you have every other man's religion of you trying to do your best and work yourself up and accomplish things to make yourself right before God. That's not Christianity. Christianity you have just as if you never sinned, And just as if you always did everything perfectly. It's crucial to see that, it's important to see that. It's important that your obedience to God comes from a heart of gratefulness, of one who has been saved by grace through faith and not on the basis of one who is trying to earn your standing before God. We've kind of laid the case out, you can't do that. All of us fell in Adam, all of us are born with a sinful nature, We're hopeless in that respect. God made a way whereby you can be saved. It's by trusting in Christ alone, repenting of sin and trusting in Christ alone as the only means that he has been given whereby you can be saved. That results in you no longer having any of the requirements for breaking God's law. The wrath of God no longer abides on you. End of John 3 says, all who do not believe on Christ, the wrath of God is over them. That's not the case with one who is in Christ. And then you have the fullness of the blessing and the benefit of perfectly keeping the law of God. That's what's been granted to you by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus. Then you say, so it doesn't matter how we live. The legalist always likes to say that. The Roman Catholic always likes to say, it doesn't matter how you live. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we'd walk in. That's Ephesians 2 and verse 10. No, it matters how you live. How you live affects your life and it affects other people's lives. It affects lives of people uh, many generations into the future. It's very important how you live. It's, it's a way of glorifying God. You were made to walk in obedience to God's moral law, but it's in response to a grateful heart toward God and what he has done and not for the purpose of making yourself right before God. And that makes all the difference. And that's why a topic like this is very, very important. It's important that we understand the covenant of works It's placement in the Bible because it so much connects to these other Christian doctrines that we see flowing in the New Testament.